Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month I'm discussing the Editor's Choice manuscript from the September 2017 issue, and this recent advances in clinical practice paper is entitled Feeding the Microbiota, Transducer of Nutrient Signals for the Host. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Fergus Shanahan here today from the APC Microbiome Institute and Schools of Medicine and Microbiology, University College Cork in Ireland. So thanks very much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Um, So you start your article by stating that microbial science is challenging traditional concepts of nutrition. As an introduction to the podcast, can you summarize the main historical developments in the field of the microbiota and its interface with nutrition? Yes, Marie. The the opening sentence of our article was intentionally bold. Um, We were trying to make the blunt point at the beginning that microbiome science is changing traditional concepts of nutrition and, if you like, broadening and informing how we do nutritional assessments and how we shape our advice uh, for, for patients. In the past, I think nutrition was largely assessed in terms of the quantity and the quality of calories and specific nutrient intake uh, for, the, for the host, for the patient, for the individual, without any real consideration given to the fact that what we, when we eat, we're feeding not only ourselves, we're also feeding our microbes. And since our microbes that colonize us are critical for health maintenance, it's logical that nutrition should be considered in the context of what promotes a healthy microbiome. And the relationship between the microbiota, which is the collective number of microbes in and on our body, the relationship between that and diet is bidirectional. On the one hand, the microbiota provides a digestive function for the human host and is a net contributor to host nutrition, making calories and essential nutrients bioavailable. And it's not some form of parasite or detractor from host nutrition. On the other hand, diet influences the composition and function of the microbiota. And all of this has become, become clear in recent years. Now, clinicians have always suspected something like this. Examples include the change in odor and consistency and color of stools when a, when a baby is weaned from the breast to formula or to solids. And anyone who's ever changed a baby's nappy or diaper will know that. And other examples that we've all had is when we make an abrupt change in our diet Frequently one has a digestive upset or some form of gas formation, flatulence. These all reflect changes in microbial fermentation and metabolism of the new dietary change. So we've always suspected that. The science is now catching up with that. So what was the aim of this current review? Well, the review was aimed primarily at clinicians and particularly gastroenterologists. Gastroenterologists are continually now asked by patients, doctor, what should I eat? What do I need to eat? And more and more, our patients are quite knowledgeable about the microbiome. They've heard the term. They've seen it in magazines. So our intent was to to provide clinicians with uh, an an overview of the clinical relevance of, of basic science advances in understanding the microbiome, particularly in relation to how food interacts with microbiome and how that in turn influences health maintenance. And to give clinicians some broad brush strokes for, for dietary advice and nutritional assessment and, and perhaps even for the design to give them a glimpse of how future foods might be designed. 
So you split the evidence into several sections and we'll consider these in turn. So firstly, the impact of diet microbial community and host responses is complex. And you describe this as a network of connectivity and offer some mechanistic examples around this. So tell us more about this uh, concept. Yes, I, I think this, this term network of connectivity or a signaling internet what I'd like people to think of is microbial signaling, which we know happens. We know the microbes in the gut are sending signals to the host that influence the immune system, the metabolic system, the neuroendocrine system, metabolism in general. So instead of thinking as the microbiota and the immune system and the endocrine or metabolic system as discrete entities, we need to think of them as, as a signal in internet. There are many cross-sections at which the inflammatory response interacts with endocrine responses and metabolic responses, and the microbi microbiome signals, signals each of these. But diet also influences the microbiome, the immune system, and the endocrine system. So that's why I was trying to, trying to get this point across, that we can't think of these as discrete entities. Now, the details of this are complex at face value. Some specific examples arise. I've given several examples in the paper where there are these reciprocal loops of interactions among diet microbes and host immunity and indeed metabolism, but one might suffice. If you take, for example, dietary fiber, the end product by which uh, microbes digest dietary fiber, the end product are short-chain uh, fatty acids. Now, they're not only a source of nutrition for the epithelium, a source of calories, they also act on specific receptors on the immune system, so they shape and condition our immune system. But in addition, they act as local hormones, influencing many aspects of gastrointestinal function. And they even interact with bile acid metabolism. So all of these things are happening at once when, when we consume a, 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 a meal. And when these short-chain fatty acids interest, interact with bile, then you get this other reciprocal loop where we know that diet influences bile flow, particularly a fatty diet. Uh, we know that the microbes are required to activate bile and uh, uh, convert primary bile acids to secondary bile acids. But bile acids turn out to be local hormones as well, and they feed back on the immune system, which in turn influences the composition of the microbiota. So all of these, these the signal in the internet is happening all the time while we're, while we're consuming a specific meal. Now, now, why is any of that important? Well, if you consider that in the first three years of human life, the microbiota is being assembled. And this is a period when it will have maximum influence on the maturation of the immune system, and indeed on other host systems such as metabolism and neuroendocrine development. Dietary intake then determines which microbes colonize and flourish and are retained. What we eat determines which microbes will arrive, which microbes will stay, and which microbes will be retained in the human gut or disappear later on. And indeed, diet is the source of foodborne microbes. So anything that negatively impacts the assembly of the microbiota during those early years of life, such as the effects of antibiotics and perhaps a poor diet, that's a potential risk factor for altering the influence of the microbiota on the developing immune system and on metabolism. So it's not surprising that we're beginning to see now emerging evidence for antibiotics, for example, as an early risk factor for the later development of immune and allergic diseases, the major risk factor for the development of inflammatory bowel disease, for example, in later life, but also a risk factor for metabolic disorders such as obesity, 
and metabolic syndrome. And poor diet, in addition to antibiotic exposure, might contribute to this risk. And hence, that's the importance of this signaling internet of microbes, immune system, endocrine and metabolic events, with diet having a central role in conditioning all of that. So the gut microbiota produce a multitude of bioactive metabolites, and you gave us an example there. Um, and diet has a significant influence on this metabolic function. So how does this impact health and development of disease? Yeah, there, there, the example I gave was the short-chain fatty acids, which is a, is a complex and multi-layered example, but there are others. The uh, diet controls the composition and metabolic function of the microbiome, but that in turn is a source of vitamins, for example. It's a source of vitamin K, folic acid, thiamine, and indeed other vitamins, tryptophan. Dietary oxalate, for example, is a risk factor for kidney stones, and about a third of us have an organism called oxalobacter, which can metabolize oxalate and protect us from the development of kidney stones. Lactobacilli would be another microbial component which can do the same. A very interesting example is the impact of dietary choline, which is a phospholipid we get in meat and um, processed meats, and also the amino acid L-carnitine of dietary source. Now, because of microbial metabolism of those dietary components, they may in some individuals be a risk factor for the later development of atherosclerosis. In some of us, we have microbial components that, that can metabolize trimethylamine, which is dietary-derived ultimately, and when that's absorbed, um, that becomes oxidated in the liver, and that can be proatherogenic. So here's an example of a dietary component interacting with the microbiome, then interacting with human host metabolism and a potential risk factor for disease. And there are many other examples like that. So as you said earlier, we acquire our microbiota in infancy, and this is important for development and health in childhood and beyond into adulthood. So can you describe the mechanisms underlying the microbial influence on organ development and dietary factors that can impact on this? Well, we, we know from studies in germ-free animals, germ-free animals have immune organs, but they don't have an, 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 a mature immune system. And that requires exposure to commensal microbes to become educated. Our immune system is uh, present at birth, but it requires exposure to the environment and particularly to the commensal microbes that colonize us at birth to become fully developed. The spleen is present, but it's not histologically normal in a germ-free animal. Now, the same is true for mucosal barrier function, endocrine function, stress responses, and the nervous system. Even myelination in the brain requires uh, microbial signals to control its full development. So we can deduce from all of this that the microbiota sends positive and negative regulatory signals for host development. And that includes internal organs, metabolic functioning, even stress responses, and of course the immune response. So it follows from all of that that regulation is dependent on a diversity of signals, and a, and a healthy microbiome is one major source of those signals. And it in turn is determined by what we feed it. So leading on from this, what are the consequences of undernourishment in infancy and childhood? And can the microbiota be manipulated to promote health and weight gain? Well, it, it has long been known that neonatal and infant malnutrition is a risk factor for growth stunting and unfortunately impaired cognitive development 
and indeed an increased risk of infections in these malnourished children. And sadly, that impairment is permanent and irreversible if it's not addressed early. So it's vital that we do something as early as possible. Now, one of the remarkable revelations from microbiome science from a number of labs recently has been that malnutrition also leads to an immature microbiome. And experimentally, if that immature microbiome from a malnourished child is experimentally transferred to a germ-free animal, the recipient animal also exhibits growth stunting. And we're beginning to learn which dietary components and which components of the microbiome might be able to offset the negative impact of malnutrition on the microbiota and indeed on growth. So in these experimental models, at least, certain dietary components, particularly human milk oligosaccharides that are particularly prevalent in breast milk, but are beginning to be introduced into formula, formula, uh, commercial formula, and certain microbes can offset this negative impact of an immature microbiome from malnutrition and restore, or at least partially restore, growth and development. One implication from all of this work, of course, is that we need to focus not just on infant and neonatal nutrition, but also on the nutrition of the expectant mother. Because the microbiota is in part vertically transmitted. We get our microbiome largely from our mothers with then additional uh, admixture from, from the environment. So the mother is, in essence, eating for the next generation. And therefore, greater attention needs to be given to maternal nutrition if we want to actually impact infant nutrition. So you then consider the opposite end of the weight spectrum. Tell us about the interactions between nutrition, the microbiota and host response and obesity and lessons learned from preclinical lab science. Well, several lines of evidence link the microbiome, the microbiota with overnutrition or obesity and onward then to metabolic syndrome, fatty liver disease. Uh, the observational evidence has been that the microbiota is a net contributor to nutrition, as I've already said, uh, by increasing energy harvest from food. So germ-free mice, for example, have to consume 20 to 30% more calories than a colonized mice to maintain an equivalent weight. Now, the experimental evidence in animal models, the best evidence is, involves transplants of human donor microbiota to what we call humanized mice. In other words, germ-free mice colonized with a human microbiota and then fed different diets. And that provides persuasive evidence uh, for the functional impact of the microbiota on energy balance. So do these concepts translate into human obesity and can we manipulate the microbiota as part of a weight reduction plan? Well, we know we, by manipulating the microbiota in the experimental animal models, we can offset diet-induced obesity. The question is, can you, could you do it in a human? And for logistical reasons and ethical reasons, it's much more difficult to assemble the evidence for this in humans. But we do know that fecal transplants from lean donors to obese human recipients does result in improved metabolic health, such as glucose tolerance in the recipient. In addition, the most effective treatment for morbid obesity, which is bariatric surgery, we also know that this results in profound early changes in the microbiota, which have been mechanistically linked, or at least does circumstantial evidence to link 
those changes with the weight loss that we see in humans undergoing this surgery. And lastly, there are some components of human microbiome, such as acromancia, that have been inversely linked with obesity through various observations in a number of studies, inversely linked with obesity and indeed insulin resistance. And that raises the therapeutic potential of possibly replacing acromancia uh, or feeding with a prebiotic food ingredient that supports the flourishing uh, acromancia in the gut. So one complex aspect of this field is the individualized variation in microbiota and host response to changes in diet. Do you think we're heading towards an era where we can assess an individual's microbial community to predict the response to particular dietary intervention and then to use this to promote health and treat disease? Yes, we've known for a long time that there is high inter-individual variability to the same diet. People respond quite differently when they're given precisely the same thing. And that would challenge then universal or global dietary recommendations. So we, we need more detail on, on who is likely to respond and who is not likely to respond if we're going to shape our dietary advice. And we do know that diet does shape the microbiome, but because of this variable effect, we need to drill further and know more. And we're beginning to understand some of the factors that do determine this inter-individual variability. Some of them, for example, some of these variables that determine that response, uh, we, we know already. One of these is the composition of the microbes present, present in the gut prior to the dietary intervention. And second of all, the individual's dietary practice prior to the dietary intervention. So in other words, your ability to respond to some new dietary intervention depends on what kind of organisms you have in the gut already and how you've been feeding them already up till then. For example, in one study, the effect of dietary fiber on glucose tolerance was shown to be influenced by the ratio of Prevotella to Bacteroides in the gut. The higher the ratio, the greater the chance of response to administration of fiber. So one is approaching the possibility of using microbiome science to inform us as to who's likely to, to respond and who's not likely to respond. And as, I think we, as we become more granular and detailed, in our ability to molecularly profile the microbiota, it may be possible to relate more specific microbial signatures in a personalized way with dietary responsiveness. And I think this will improve dietary advice in the future. So current westernized diets contain dietary additives and examples are artificial sweeteners or emulsifiers. Do these chemical additives impact our microbiota and does this alter host physiology? Well, I think most chemical additives to food are probably safe. But in many instances, the impact of these chemicals have never been tested in a formal sense on the microbiome. There is some evidence that artificial sweeteners can induce functional changes, for example, in the gut microbiota and indeed drive glucose intolerance, the opposite to what the intended function of the dietary sweetener was in the first place. Now, That was a sensational finding and needs to be replicated in greater detail in other labs. But I think more worrisome than that is the potential impact of dietary emulsifiers, which are universal and and present in many, many processed foods and sadly is in ice cream, which greatly disturbs me because I love ice cream. And experimentally, it's been shown that these dietary emulsifiers at least in experimental animals, do damage the mucus layer 
lining the epithelium in the gut. And more importantly, they of themselves alter the composition of the microbiota, changing it to a more mucolytic uh, microbiome, in other words, something that digests that mucin. So both of these effects have actually been linked with uh, an increased prevalence of low-grade inflammation experimentally in these animals and indeed weight gain. So here you have the same thing again, inflammation, a change in the immuno-inflammatory response and a metabolic change, weight gain in these experimental animals. Now, the implications for humans is obvious, but it hasn't been proven yet to be a, a risk factor in humans, but it's worrisome. What about the impact of different diet types to the microbiota? Well, humans are remarkable. We've, desi- we've devised a high degree of variability in the food uh, that we consume, and some of it, most of it very appealing, but there have also been some strange diets. And we do know already that highly restrictive or monotonous diets have been linked with a loss of microbial diversity. It makes sense. If the food we eat determines which microbes colonize and persist, then if we have a very monotonous diet, it reduces the microbial diversity. And on the long term, that's not likely to be healthy. This is particularly a problem in the elderly who, uh, when, because of various physiological changes, including poor dentition, tend to be given a very milk-based monotonous diet and their microbiome tends to collapse then and become uh, uh, very limited in its diversity. And that poses a risk factor for uh, infections for them. So microbiome science is beginning to catch up here and uh, identify particularly food fads and highly restrictive diets, the long-term safety of which must be questioned because it's not safe and, and not wise if one wishes to have a, 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 a a, a very diverse microbiome, microbiota. So to finish up, in your opinion, what is the emerging impact of this increasing knowledge and how might this be used in the future to promote our health and treat disease? Well, I think the major impact is that a lot of common sense is now being backed up by good science in relation to how we'd advise people in relation to their diet. I think the lesson, for example, of helicobacter and peptic ulceration and cancer was that some diseases, for some diseases, the solution will never be found to them by focusing exclusively on the human host. We have to examine the microenvironment. Now, the same is likely to be true of comprehensive health. It's no longer sufficient to assess health and wellness by human physiology alone. A healthy microbiome is absolutely inseparable from, a, from human health. So the take-home message from our review and from all the examples we outline is that optimal health you need to mind your microbes. And if you're going to assess the nutritional status of, for example, the elderly, it's not enough just to count calories and count essential nutrients. You also have to count the diversity of that diet, which in turn is relevant to the diversity of the microbiome, which promotes health. They're simple messages, and the microbiome science is beginning to inform us and catch up with what many of us felt we knew already. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Professor Fergus Shanahan for joining me today. Thank you very much.